0: Hi, and welcome to side of Design from BWBR, a podcast for those who are passionate, curious, and obsessed about the performance of organizations and the people and the facilities that power them. We're happy you're joining us for these discussions on the topics and issues affecting how we heal, learn, work, research, play, and pray. In essence, how we live, all with a side of design. Thanks for tuning in. And if you like what you hear, subscribe. We come out every two weeks with new episodes. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms. Also, Let us know what you think about this or any discussion you've heard. Email us at siteofdesign at bwbr.com. I'm James Lockwood, your host for this episode. Each week, I've introduced us with the lines, in essence, how we live, all with a site of design. And for many of us, we're privileged to live a relatively healthy life. Some of that has been by design, meaning we designed out our communities to help us live our lives to the fullest. That's not true for everyone. For more than 60% of the population, living a healthy life can be a challenge. Communities bounded by interstates, located near industrial areas, releasing toxic particulates and groundwater, infiltrated by pollution such as lead, have shown higher rates of asthma, cancer, seizures, and learning disabilities. Add to that a missing urban forest canopy and lack of green space in many of these communities that contribute to the heat island effect, And the stress of living day to day can take years off of one's life. In every city, even in rural ones, communities like this are in zip codes, where the life expectancy is years lower than those in other zip codes, with more green space and better zoning, separating residential areas from sources of pollution. That people live in these communities, on average, are heavily people of color. Systemically, people living in these communities have little political clout, all by design. The past two decades, there's been a real focus on environmentalism and sustainability aimed at reducing our impact on the environment and improving our air and water quality. But like all systems in America, we're recognizing that our focus on sustainability and conservation of resources have oftentimes overlooked how equitable the movement is or isn't. This past year has really demonstrated why the criticism is so important. In those communities where pollution is so prevalent, COVID-19 infection rates are 40% higher than in other communities, and mortality rates are 19% higher, according to a study that came out from American University. Obviously, there are so many levels in which we can discuss sustainability. Today, we want to discuss it through the lens of equity. How should we own our oversights in the past, and what does this journey look like that can put us on the right path towards benefiting all through better design, all forms of design? As we started our conversation, we need to be transparent upfront and recognize this moment we're in. In the discussion today are three people who are immersed in sustainability and architectural design. Steph Leonard is Associate Director of Market Transportation and Development at the U.S. Green Building Council's office in Minneapolis. James Nutt is a registered architect and lead accredited professional here at BWBR who serves on the firm's equity task force. And Sarah Gunnard Curley, also a registered architect and lead accredited professional, is BWBR's key manager for sustainable design, helping teams, clients, and others evaluate their projects through sustainability and performance metrics. They are all on a self-described lifelong journey examining the issues of race, becoming anti-racist, and centering equity in their work. Recognizing blind spots and understanding how we can move forward better is part of that journey. We are also all white and we haven't lived the same experiences of our people of color friends. We can't expect them to carry the weight of making change. We have to change ourselves. We're not providing answers today. We're discussing questions in our own journey to improve. We're probably gonna make some mistakes in our language in this discussion. All we can do is ask for some graciousness as we fail forward on this path to being better partners with our POC colleagues and neighbors. Also, for those of you not familiar with us, we come to you from our offices located in three northern mid-American cities, Madison, Wisconsin, Omaha, Nebraska, and Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Minnesota, the last city being home to our largest office. As we sat to record this, we were already living through the trial of the officer accused of murdering George Floyd. And then another unarmed black man, dante wright was shot by police during another questionable traffic stop to say that emotions are raw and patience is thin is an understatement it is inexcusable that we continue to live through these events locally and nationally on a regular occurrence we have to recognize that these events have been precipitated by decades of systems put in place to oppress minority the system has to change if we are to end these unjust events this is a raw time for us so as we begin today Stephanie, James, and Sarah, how are you doing? And how are you processing what is happening right now?
1: Well, I can start. Um, this is uh, James Knott, as he said, with a BWBR. Um, I'm excited to be here, and I'm really curious to um, this huge broad subject, what we're going to talk about. Um, I'm hopeful because I just got my second COVID shot today. But as I watch everything that's unfolding with the trial and everything, it's just really amazing to watch it unfold and uh, the nuanced complexities of it. Um, it's just it's just hard to get your head around but it's important
2: but this is stuff i think that's the issue right is that like there isn't a way to process or digest this i mean it's another life lost and when there isn't a clear cut way to process or digest people tend to step back and disconnect because it's hard it hurts it's it's scary um so i think we're all kind of in that state still, right? And watching the community of Brooklyn Center suffer and feeling that for them, watching his mom, uh, you know, she's, I've really listened to his mom's words over the past couple of days. And I have two children and I, I have this privilege of not, having to worry in the same way, but I know what it is to be a mom. And I, I know, I know what it is to fear for your child. And I, I just they just, there isn't a way to process right now. Right. And then people
3: want to take a step back. Yeah. I think I'm in the, this is Sarah and, the, and not knowing how to process it but too. I mean, definitely tired of hearing about it. I'm actually from Brooklyn center. That's where I grew up. Um, but, uh, but you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I definitely don't, I feel like I'm tired of it, but then I have no right to be tired of it because I'm not living it day to day, right? I'm not, I'm still the white, I got that privilege and I'm a mom, I have that, but, and a woman, but it just doesn't seem nearly equivalent to what other people have gotta be going through. I can relate more directly to what, what happens.
0: Uh, James and Sarah, the issues surrounding the killings of George Floyd and Dante, right? They aren't architectural issues. What role do we have as architectural professionals joining this discussion?
1: Yeah, um, I, I'll go first. Um, they're not necessarily architectural issues, but all of this happens in the built environment, right? And the built environment is part of player. I think there's a book about classrooms called The Fifth Teacher, where the classrooms the fifth fifth teacher. And as we're trained as architects, we go in, we think we're designing walls. And then we get our mind blown because we're designing spaces. We're not designing walls. It doesn't matter how thick the wall is. And then as you get further into it, uh, you really understand that you're uh, designing relationships, you know, the spaces have relationships. Um, you know, there's urban moves, there's landscaping moves and stuff, but there's a relationship of the street, um, to the building. There's a relationship of to a restaurant, you know, to a kitchen, whether it's there or not, but we design relationships and, uh, who we're designing for, um, really comes into it. And so we, um, In these spaces um, and these neighborhoods, things have been done over time that affect this. So um, so architecture does play and we need to understand better uh, to design better for these spaces.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I go to the fact that we design the police stations, we design the prisons, we design these facilities that these people are working in both on on both sides. Right. Both the police officers and the, the people having to being there in more unfortunate situations. And I mean, we have a collective voice. I think we're seeing as leaders, we have quite a bit of influence over the people we work with on a day-to-day our clients. And, and we also are predominantly white. So I'm just, I think we're trying to become more aware of the conscious and unconscious biases that we bring to just designing these spaces. I mean, that has so much to do with how they end up feeling to everyone.
1: And not only are we predominantly white, but we're also predominantly male, right? So me as a rather large male. I don't think about how to get from some where somebody works to their car in the same way that you know that someone else would. I don't think about spaces that I may not feel like I just automatically belong into. Because uh, the majority of the spaces we do are, are higher end, you know, larger corporation spaces, at least in our work. So I've learned a lot of different lenses through projects or I've had it thrown in my face like, oh, my gosh, this is this is my assumptions are not the assumptions. Um, it's pretty fascinating, but it's it's pretty daunting as well.
0: Steph, when we set up this discussion today, we laid out the premise that it was to talk about sustainability and equity in our communities. As we digested the most recent police killings, you made an interesting observation that these events are not completely disconnected from the ideals of sustainability. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I think you kind of set it up in your opening, right? You laid out a lot of the things. I mean, we're a relatively young country, so it's not too long ago that all men and women weren't created equal in the written law. Our communities still suffer the damage of segregation and inequitable laws and practices, like discriminatory lending, redlining, gerrymandering, um, toxic waste zones, all these things, they they still happen. They're they're maybe a little bit more thinly veiled, not well, but a little bit more thinly veiled than they once were. Um and they're they're practices that leave scars and leave hidden biases and they devalue human life. And they're practices that our communities were built on, right? So in our region to date, we're still one of the most, if not the most segregated region in the U.S. And that creates a bias in all we do and deprogramming that, becoming aware of that, acknowledging that, dismantling that and accepting one's role in that and working to change that needs to be an active and daily intentional practice in all walks of life. I think I mentioned in my, in my opening, how am I doing? We're not processing it that's not okay. Like We need to actively reflect on what's happening in our societies and how we play a role in that. So when we're talking about the environment, we don't have sustainability if we don't have equity. And we need to be held accountable to that as individuals and as an industry. We can't just think we're infallible because we're trying to do one good thing, right? We need, we, when we get called out because something that we were doing to try to solve one problem creates another problem, we need to stop and take a minute and listen, examine, think about our role and the perception of our role, and accept that our perception is not the same as someone else's, like James was saying, and then do better without getting defensive, without feeling defensive. We can all practice saying, okay. I see your point. How do we do better? So I think, that that's, I think that if you look at how our communities are built, you can see the intersectionality of it all. Some of the resources that I've kind of learned or used to kind of come to understand a little bit more, a couple of my favorites are The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And if you guys haven't had a chance to see the documentary Jim Crow of the North, which was produced by Daniel Bergen for TPT, it's excellent.
0: And, uh for those outside of our region TPT is Twin Cities public television so your PBS station might actually have that in their repertoire as well. Um, <laughs> so um, we, we do get a little uh, centric in our uh, in our references because this is where we live um you know speaking of where we live James when we outlined the adverse impacts that design has on so many communities, what I described were design elements such as landscape and transportation and policy, that are outside of the world of architecture. With that said, has architecture been complicit in exacerbating the issues of inequity in these communities? And if so, how?
1: Uh, yeah, well, absolutely, it has. And um, and there's two parts of it, right? There's there's an the impact that you're about to make with this project that you've got. Like you know, a lot of times we don't get to pick exactly what and where. We have a client who has a piece of property. And, um, you know, we've we've got their moral things, but there's there's what we are going to do for and to to that community and also what has been done in the past. Because a lot of these communities have had good things done, and a lot of them have had a series of microaggressions against the neighborhood. And there's a lot of times it's unintended consequences. I mean, we've all done projects where the goal is to maximize the property that we have. For the most profit, you know, get as many offices as you can into a space, and we've all done projects, there where the owner was really invested in community and they wanted to create pocket parks or say something to and about the urban fabric. that's there, and so my favorite part is coming into one of these projects with with just open curiosity, you know, of learning who we're designing for, uh, how does it feel, uh, who does it, you know, is it does it feel safe, and who does it feel safe for, you know, are we protecting for something or against something it's it's just really interesting and there's all kinds of aspects like uh fencing you know for fencing for instance can be a place where people can hide or it can be a place that um protects a facility from a lot of traffic like along broadway it's a very busy street but you're you're almost like up against an interstate so how do you how do you protect for that Uh, how do you create eyes on the street like potential windows and traffic to keep places where things you don't want to, to happen, uh, happen. There's a lot to that. And we can come into it assuming that we know what's best. And I've had so many projects where what I thought was best from listening to the client is actually might have the opposite reaction.
3: I think that's the history of architecture in some ways. I mean, some of the large like affordable housing developments you think of over the years, that it was some great idea to make these high rises that had them all together and, and then they just, I mean, they didn't work out so well. And they didn't, they turned yeah. into kind of a large problem for the cities and a lot of crime and just things that yeah. seem like good ideas.
1: Yeah, they were designed by a designer coming and thinking that they knew what was best for their community right. before. And we've also had projects where we go in and listen to the community to check off that we've done that mm-hmm. and do what we're going to do anyway. And that is absolutely not the right way to go about that.
0: I, I was going to ask about that, James, because uh, I think it was a, uh, James Garrett over at formula architects who pointed out that just the process of design, when we set up these community engagement sessions, what we sometimes call charrettes, we do it in such a fashion that, um, it's a very almost nuclear family, middle-class perspective. You know, we'll do it at six o'clock in the evening when we think, Oh, nobody's at work. It's post-dinner whatever. And yet, that really doesn't allow the real community who's going to be impacted to participate because they may have two jobs or they may work a second or third shift that doesn't does allow them to do it. Do we need to be evaluating our process as much as we need to be evaluating the impact itself?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time we do one of these, we always have a post, what worked and what didn't work. And what's also interesting about these, uh, I was on the zoning board of adjustment for Minneapolis for many years, and there would be the issue in front of us, and there would be what people are talking about. You know, we'd be talking about an alley issue, but they're talking about snow removal. This has nothing to do with snow removal. So a lot of times these community events are a way to really understand some nuances because the people coming in may not be talking about your project, but talking about something in that neighborhood or some other some other issue. Um, so you, you have to keep it, you know, we go in and say, we need this answer. And, um, a lot of times that answer is kind of nuanced around a lot of other answers, but the biggest thing is to, to go in and listen and to be curious, um, and to, to try to find yeah. those small things.
3: I've heard too. It's important to start. I mean, before the even project starts, like, I think us being located in St. Paul and we have our community here and then also, you know, Omaha and Madison, but developing that relationship ahead of time, and getting involved in these groups ahead of time so that it's so you understand like what would work for them to some degree before you're even getting into that to know if that six o'clock maybe it does work for them maybe it doesn't but to have some knowledge on that or to work with partners in that community that would know that better than yeah. than us
1: yeah and some communities are comfortable with being in public forum and getting up and complaining about something or asking a question and in some communities and some cultures that is not acceptable so you need to understand a way to pull out those questions whether it's you know, that's not considered polite or that's not, that's not acceptable. Not everybody thinks the way we
0: do. Steph, you work out in the community. How, you know, from a USGB standpoint is the engagement changing?
2: I think that it's a lot more people centered. You know, somebody recently said to me, and I think we, we talked about this a little bit in preparation for this, that they don't really connect with the sustainability movement because they're not outdoorsy. And and for me, that was really hard. And I, I totally stumbled through like responding to them because I I was like, it goes hand in hand. You don't have a life. If nature doesn't have a life, what what do you mean? So, but I think that the framing of the industry is really changing and understanding what we're designing for. And I'm not a designer. I'm a, you know, I'm not an architect. Let's, let's, let's get that clear. I'm a community organizer by practice. And I know enough to be dangerous, like when it comes to the technicalities of what you guys do, it's mind boggling for me. But I think the conversation around what we're designing for or who we're designing for is really changing and why we're designing that way and what good design is and if it's not considering the intersectionality of sustainability, resiliency, equity, health and wellness then is it really good design? But also the life cycle of the building needs to be taken into consideration and What what's going to happen with that building or with that park or with that school? How's it going to be maintained? And what does that mean for the people in it? Again, it comes back to the people in it. And, you know, energy efficiency can save money. We're not necessarily talking about energy efficiency because That's better for the earth. It is better for the earth. And that is important, but it saves us money too. You know, it's that triple bottom line. Mm -hmm. So I think we're talking about that a lot more and we're making it occupant centered, people focused a lot more.
1: I have to share a story here that I shared in our prep before this that gets to everything you just talked about, Steph. My mom has been sick and I have spent a lot of nights uh, sleeping in uh, uh, hospital waiting rooms. And I've been in old hospitals where you know the the goal is obviously is to get as many rooms as we possibly can, and you feel like you need a piece of you deserve a piece of cheese by the time you go down the maze, and find where you're supposed to be. And a lot of uh, study lately has has found that, and there's no daylight anywhere. Right? It's just it's miles of, of corridor and uh newer hospitals are designed for you know they've they've proven out that if a, if a room has a window that a client heals like 15 20 percent faster uh, there's less nurse turnover rate so it's not just about daylight it's not just about that you know sustainability we check off it's about people comfort it's you know the rest of it but i'm in this stressed out you know this was not designed for the families that are stressed out with a loved one that's going through something very serious And I'm stressed out. I've been there for days. I'm asleep on this uncomfortable, more comfortable than normal chair. And I'm in this two-story lobby and I wake up and I hear a fountain downstairs. And I can see the stars through this big piece of glass. And I was like, this building gives a damn about the people in it. And that is not a feeling I got from the old ones. And I've got goosebumps now thinking about it, just how important that was. And then I saw another hospital coming up in my hometown. And it also had inefficient floor plate, but lots of glass and it had that same, you know, caring about the person and the staff that works in there and the people in the bed, not how many rooms can I get in? And some of these poor old hospitals, they've been added on to so many times. It's, you know, chaos upon chaos, but it is a different way of thinking about design and sustainability and daylight.
2: Absolutely. And James... You know, thinking about, thank you for sharing that personal experience, but thinking about your stress and not to minimize it in there, but thinking about your stress in that situation, layer in a language divide, layer in not knowing how you're going to pay for those hospital bills. Absolutely. And then being in this isolating, cold, hard, dark maze situation. Yes. I I mean,
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just compounding. A lot of what, James, uh, you and Steph just highlighted seems to... The American Institute of Architects uh, two years ago released what was called the Framework for Design Excellence with a set of 10 principles. Um, it was an evolution of something they previously had focusing on environmental aspects. But it really put everything that James, you and Steph just highlighted, it really put it up front. Design for ecology, design for uh, ecosystems, design for well-being, design for change. Sarah, I know that you've worked, been working on how to integrate the framework. To a lot of our project work, you know, does this rebranding, if you will, represent a significant change in the approach that the profession is taking on projects? And how does this framework actually bring the owners into this conversation? Because I'm not sure how much the owners are always thinking about this to James's point. They're thinking about (laughs) cost-benefit. They're not always thinking about long-term ecology. (laughs) Let me me
1: interject for a second. A lot of times we deal with, with people who have different, you know, one person is focused on this part of the project and another person is focused on the numbers of the project. Another person is focused on customer, but they're not necessarily in the room all the time. So a lot of times our customer is several different customers with different centers of the universe. So I'm right. sorry to jump in there, but. but. Which is where
3: I think the framework gets gets a lot of its strength and it's multifaceted the way it looks at things. But I guess just to broaden it to the framework, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but you know, lead Well, the Living Building Challenge, I think all of them have recently been incorporating equity, inclusion, diversity, environmental justice, climate justice, all these topics trying to, I feel like a light bulb has almost gone off in, in many of these systems i guess to try to define what sustainability is right there's this there's a broad concept of what, what what really is it. so there's all these systems being developed around how to how to frame that and i think in some cases it's been present for longer than others i've i'm familiar with the previous incantation of the framework for design excellence it was called called the coat top 10 toolkit and i think the rebranding around that particular now I just want to call it a framework, is, is trying to open it up to everybody and every project. Like this isn't something that we apply just to a handful that happen to need a toolkit to know how to apply this. This is trying to open it up to any project. And I think that's why I LEAD has, you know, had come up with multiple versions, trying to make it more applicable. And WELL has become more prevalent, looking at the human health side of things, trying to just round out how we think about what sustainability and equity and inclusion and diversity there's just so many different ways to think about it right um how we bring that to our projects and and so there's just yeah i think we have to bring it to our clients and it's it's part of our due diligence but i think finding the right what matters to them i suppose not to say that not all of it would matter like of course it all matters but just what they particularly identify with is is one of our tasks and then even if they don't necessarily want to talk about something making sure we're still bringing it to the project in a way because a lot of these topics are too important to just say by the wayside if a client's not necessarily interested in talking about it. We still have a, a role there. I just, I, I wish these things would happen faster. I have a bit of impatience around, around it. And I just think, you know, sustainability, I just, I can't get away from the idea that there's this privilege, right? There's this thought of privilege and humanity has this sort of, I don't know, privilege around thinking that our actions to the planet don't matter, but they do, right? We are part of this planet and it just feels like some of that privilege whether it's conscious or unconscious is also being used to maintain these inequ- inequitable systems. Just to say, yeah, it resonates. That resonates with me at the moment at least.
1: Sarah, I think I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I feel like a lot of times when we're trying to get decisions or we're making decisions, it's really easy to focus on what we need right now to get past right now. Right. And I feel like our job as architects and designers is to think about that decision in context of the larger and longer right. time frame. you know, well, let's just do this let's just let's just use fiberglass insulation because it's cheap everybody knows how to do it and we'll just go through it and, it'll, and it's code minimum we're fine and instead of thinking about you know the payback in the long term right and you know and the and trade-offs the
3: and what's going to impact you know what mm-hmm. What's long-term use to like, Steph, you were saying, you know, the life of the building, how is this going to serve the building for the life? We have hundred year buildings. Hopefully we can be like Europe and have a thousand year buildings, right? Or, you know, Africa and Egypt, I'm sure also have very long China, you know, buildings that have been around for how many thousands of years. Hopefully we would, we could, we could get there.
0: Steph, if you go back about 20 years ago, when uh, USGBC came up with its uh, first lead, certification for buildings. If I'm correct, it was 20 years. Um, they really seemed to focus on things like energy efficiency, water conservation. It, it was almost building performance focus and not necessarily people performance focused. Is that a fair critique? You know, How is the movement changing now that the focus is more about benefiting communities, especially those most impacted by pollution and climate change?
2: So I struggle with this because, again, again, we're we're separating it so they don't go hand in hand. So performance focused, people focused, that goes hand in hand. So both in the sense that people's behaviors in a building are what help determine its performance. I mean, you can design the greenest building on the planet, but if we're not going to operate and maintain it in a sustainable fashion, it's not going to do what you designed it to do. It's going to look real pretty. Oh,
3: I know. <laughs> People so, are the bane of knowledge,
2: <laughs> or are they? Are they just waiting to know more, to learn more, right? No,
3: absolutely. More,
2: you know, and so I, I mean, performance, performance, performance for the people, for the occupants, so that we can understand like how they feel in their building, what needs to be corrected in their building as we go forward with operating and maintaining their building. What are the things that can continue to evolve with the building? as technology changes as the occupant status changes i mean look at the last year who's in their buildings right now you know so it's again it's it's one of those things that's hand in hand i i think where maybe you keep mentioning is that the language around sustainability is really more about sustaining human life now and really focusing on how to keep people healthy in in buildings and keep people healthy in in their in their communities and and more people centered, but it's the same tools, right? It's just it's just a matter of how we use them and how we talk about them. Performance has always mattered, and and it's it, it's still incredibly important. And
3: I, th- I I like to one other thing that has become more prevalent, I think, in the sustainability movement is an emphasis on beauty and delight of the pro- project and what it can mean to people in that sense of bringing. Like what it brings to our culture, what it brings to our everyday experience, like it has to be that too for that people will value it and treasure it and feel comfortable in it and safe in these buildings.
2: And I think transparency too. Transparency of what your practice is in that building. You know, we have platforms like ARC that can be displayed when you walk into a building and, and you understand like, oh, is this a socially responsible company? Oh, look at how they're using their energy. Look at how they're using their water. Um, you know, look at the TVOC rating, you know, like so it it it's a matter of how we talk about it and why the way we're talking about it is important. Language matters.
1: Yeah. And stories matter, too. Like that's my favorite part of it is like stories to me are a big deal. We do all this work and we try to make all these, you know, relationships and then the stone hits the steel in a certain way. And you just wish that there was some like something that would tell the story of it. You know, I'm also an artist and then the story of the piece is, you know, is what makes the piece. The story of the architecture is what makes the architecture. And then it's not so many times with sustainability, it's one of the few places that you get in and you can you legit get a story of what's going on or the stuff that you can't see and the benefit of it and the impact of it.
2: And those stories, I think, I mean, those are what can really help you guys as designers, yeah. right? Because you can hear somebody's story of how they function in their building and how their building functions for them and you can you can zero in on what needs to be better for next time you know like a student in a classroom they're tired they they're not paying attention they they can't keep themselves awake everything's boring and feels heavy well that classroom doesn't have natural light that classroom doesn't have good ventilation that you know you can hear somebody's story and start to understand what how you what the
3: fixes are well and then you put that classroom in an area with a low income and probably not a great maintained facility and then those students are we're back to the equity issue right that's they're not not performing as well and
1: and also um i've did i've done an inner city school uh with another firm and we designed it to look like more of a corporate office because it was that's where they would go as part of their their thing and the whole question was well if we made this out of jiff are they going to tear it up you know, but if you make something look like it's supposed to take abuse, people will give it abuse. And the kids, I like to believe is the kids thought that that building cared about them and they just didn't have the issues that they expected to. You don't have to build a school out a CMU, CMU blocks, you know, like a fortress and get treated like a fortress if it's built like a fortress.
2: That was a concern. Really? That's, yes, that's an interesting concern.
3: Yeah. That is not, that's not an unusual concern.
2: Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes wow i mean i think you're absolutely right if Um, you if if you
1: are you are you building for someone are you building to protect from someone and if and that that affects how people interact with their space just like james's james's thing earlier if we did you know if we people can tell
3: right (laughs) no and and it can be enough a thing that they look and they're like it like registers or it can be something that it's not like even cognitive right it's not it's that conscious but We all have, we all get feelings from our spaces and we all, you know, it can affect the way we act.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Why would you go there to learn? Why would you go there to seek help? Why would you go there to get healthcare if, if it doesn't feel welcoming, if it doesn't feel like it honors you or your, your value as a human? I, that's an interesting concern.
0: I went to a high school that was, uh, was nine years old when I went into it. I think it was nine years old, might've been five. Anyways, designed in the eighties, designed for energy efficiency, no windows, designed out in um, some old tobacco fields. So not a whole lot of other buildings around it. And then they put up a chain link fence with razor wire on top. We weren't going to high school, we were going to prison.
2: James, you had a terrible high school life. Wow. I mean, my building wasn't beautiful, but good Lord.
0: it wasn't concertine wire, but it was like, so are you trying to keep us out or just trying to make us prevent us from escaping? Um, (laughs) I've, I've designed
1: lab space and they, you know, the scientists were focused on what's happening in the space. And we had this daylight and I kept getting questions. Why do we have daylight? Why do we have daylight? And I was kind of flummoxed because I've never had to answer why somebody would want daylight. And I finally was able to say, well, why wouldn't you want daylight? And then I understand in certain countries, maybe it's Germany, that um, it's unlawful to have somebody work for a certain amount of hours in a space that doesn't have, have daylight. But you can get really focused on what happens in the space and not the people's interactions in the space. There's also that pride of like, you know, working in a in a garage, you know, this kind of the, the raw discovery and the kind of rest of it, but um, it was a really interesting
0: conversation to have to have, and they have it now. To all three of you, can we achieve equity through sustainability or do we achieve sustainability by focusing on equity?
1: I think that equity has to come first because equity is the serious question of who we're designing for, where we're designing for. And sustainability can be so many things. I mean, it's not just green roofs and solar panels, right? But certain aspects would be important to one project and one people in a way that it wouldn't. And it might even be inappropriate in some projects. So I, if I had to pick one, I would say you'd have to pick equity just because it's a real honest, sincere look at who is affected and then make decisions based on that.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I don't think you can go wrong when you're actively focusing on equity and again, the people. Um, But I do think that there's a marriage between the two. Um, So it, and it depends on how you're looking at sustainability, right? like James said, it can mean a lot of things, but if you think about like a staff at a school district that changes their practices to ensure energy efficiency and better building performance, Um, And that in turn saves them money that they can put towards, you know, the learning and instruction budget. And that in turn gives the students a better experience um, at that school. Is that equity or is that sustainability? So if we're truly thinking about health and well-being, the resiliency and the sustainability of all people, then we are going to build stronger communities that sustain us as a society and as individuals. And so you can't go wrong focusing on equity. Also,
3: they hold hands. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, I hope they hold hands because what, when I think sustainability, my head goes a lot towards climate change too. And like we can't ignore that reality um, and how in some of the discussions I've been in, it almost could feel like maybe sometimes they are in conflict. Equity and sustainability can be potentially, they might lead you down different paths. And I think it's our job to to weigh them to weigh them both. And I'm not here to argue against equity in any way. I totally relate to and agree with what you and Steph, uh, James and you were saying, just with, with the background and sustainability and um, and with climate change, like it's, it's as hard sometimes to, yeah, ho- hopefully they do, they can go hand in hand and we can solve both because uh, we we need a, we need a planet to be here to, that's livable for us. But I know that so that like how it relates to climate justice, it's those people that are, of course, living in those areas that are also going to be the most affected by climate change. So it seems like by solving the climate change, we are then also inherently working towards a more equitable solution to the way we live. And I I
2: think it's our job to unite them, Right. right? Right. Right. And that's, again, where another performance issue comes in, operations and maintenance issue comes in, and the life cycle of our built environment and what it's meant to do for us. So I think a big part of our job is to unite those two and to think about how all these things play together. And that's what we need to be producing. And that's what we need to be pushing for in policy change, right? Like we can't, James, you mentioned earlier that, oh, we're just going to put this in because it's standard and that's fine. Mm -hmm. We need to raise that standard, that standard of living for all, you know, like we need to bring that up.
1: And standard for going forward with what we can control, but also like pushing for what has been done, you know? That's yeah. kind of, that's the other part. And, you know, Sarah, you're, you're coming up with, it would be nice if there was perfect solutions for all this, but there's things to weigh, you know, these right. plants and stuff have to go somewhere waste and stuff has to go somewhere. Somebody are well, we eat. need to
3: solve the way that we're creating these things right. so that we're not producing things that are truly waste. We mm. need to produce things that are useful to something else on the planet that, so it doesn't become truly waste, but yeah. we haven't quite, we haven't quite figured that out yet. It seems. Yeah
1: but people are affected and there are decisions on who's affected and who's not affected and who has clout and who doesn't. It's
0: hard decisions to be nice if they're all easy. I know we put a lot on the three of you in asking these questions. Um, And uh, especially to, to Sarah and James being registered architects, you know, throwing questions at you that can, can architectural design solve these issues? Obviously there's a lot of these issues that can't be solved simply by a new building <laughs> or, or remodeling. But with that said, James, you, you hit on something that really uh, piqued my interest. And you talked about, you know, when you build a building that's designed for abuse, people are going to abuse it. Steph, you you talked about, we, we can't separate lives and relationships that we need to look at these things as connected and going hand in hand. You know, so as we wrap up this discussion, I, I'll just throw it out there can design change the way we interact with each other? And, you know, going back to when we opened up this whole discussion, talking about the death of uh, Dante Wright and George Floyd, you know, can design actually improve the way we even police our communities?
1: Uh, I have a pretty direct example. You know, I started this out saying that we design relationships and um, I had a project on a former architectural life where it was a semi-public housing. One of the things that, that was requested and we did was to put up a transparent fence. You know, a fence can be both protection, but can also block things, but it was a transparent fence because the issue is the relationship with the law enforcement and the community was really, was not great. And without the fence, instead of the, instead of law enforcement walking and creating relationships as they walk the beat, they would just straight drive the cars through people's front yards and into public spaces. And so creating this fence, they still patrolled it, but they did it on foot. And the hope is that there would be relationships and more face-to-face because things get so separated from that, right? Um, so you can do things like that. We have done projects where the intent was to put a law enforcement check-in area in the property, and it's it's a place where people could go for safety. It's a place uh, to create relationships around. Uh, just there's, there's a saying in labs, like, um, if scientists are pretty – insular they like to stay in their head but if if you don't design a space where they get within 100 feet of each other they don't share ideas as readily but if you do they will share ideas Um, similar things like that can be done for um, just about any community that has has issues if you keep everybody separate where they don't have to interact obviously tension is a lot more possible toward that all right so there are things that we can do that create relationships and also stop certain interactions.
3: But I think we've got to figure out what they are for each each situation in each community. Yes. I think the solution is going to vary based on, you know, different, different project types. We've worked on different project types We're wrestling with that in different ways and whether it's more transparency in a room so people can see who's in there, whether they want to go into that space or not, like some, yeah. some background knowledge there being helpful to them for, yeah. or just for their safety feeling um, comfort levels, or it could look, different to a different project too. And so making sure we understand what, what is that? What mm-hmm. does that mean to that project Cause it's going to vary
1: in hey, that same project. There's, this kind of crime prevention through environmental design, but there were things that I thought would be a good idea to get more out mm-hmm. on the street, more traffic, and actually talking to the community and the police department that was with us, like, absolutely. That's, that actually creates this gray area that causes a lot of problems. So there's things in my world that make sense to me through my lens that I have learned, um, quite shockingly sometimes, um, is not the case for the community that we are working with.
3: And I think to Steph, I think you highlighted, I mean, and, then, and then go for it, Steph, I see you wanted to talk. Um, but, but you highlighted, you know, being willing to, you know, know when we get it wrong, cause we're, we're going to get it wrong and do our best to, to graciously accept, I suppose, the feedback and not get, not get defensive.
2: Well, and I think that's that decentering piece, right? right. Like, and especially like right now, like we don't have answers. We ne- don't, shouldn't necessarily be leading on no. the equity front, but we need to be supporting and vocal on the equity mm-hmm. front. And so when we're talking about a project within a community and don't go in with the answers, right? right like going right, with a right, right. listening ear and it goes right. back to that storytelling. So sure, maybe a community member isn't going to be able to tell you exactly how that building or that green space or whatever should be designed. Obviously I wouldn't be able to tell you how, but I can tell you how I feel when I'm in my right. com- c- community. I can tell you what my community needs. I can tell you where I want to be in my community. I can tell you, you, you know, those are the stories right. that really matter when you guys are looking into a project, who who's involved in your project. The practices start at home, right? Like everything from what your hiring practices are to how you hand out a project, to who you talk to when you begin that project, <laughs> uh, how you go off. into it, yeah. not decentering yourself and making well, sure that you're not going in like, I got the degree. I know what I'm doing here.
3: Yeah. Right. Who, no, who, those who stories are here. so important. Those stories are so important because that's, yeah, that's how we build. That's how we design It's based off those, based off those stories if we're doing our job, right? Yeah. We're, we're translating how that works for you into something that's three dimensions.
1: Yeah. Who gets to be in the room is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Who should be in the room? Should be right, right exactly. <laughs> right.
0: Well, thank you uh, for this conversation. I, you know, as a moderator, I'm supposed to kind of pace it, and I could probably go on all day talking with the three of you about this. I'm sure their listeners probably are looking for an end here. With that said, I appreciate you lending your voice to this discussion, Steph, James, and Sarah. It's not an easy subject for us to discuss. Um, for those of us who want to do it right. We oftentimes let fear of making a mistake get in the way of our participation. We appreciate you leaning into this important discussion, especially at a time when all of our senses are heightened. This is a conversation that doesn't have an end. 400 years of racism have embedded systems deep in our communities. But as distant as the light may seem, we do see a world that is more equitable, humane, and beneficial. We hope others feel comfortable joining the conversation with us. And in future shows, we do intend to feature more voices as we have so much to continue learning about equity, all areas of equity, whether it's race, gender, ability, or orientation. If you wanna learn more about the AIA's Framework for Design Excellence, you can find the information on AIA's website at aia.org. Search for Framework for Design Excellence. And if you have thoughts on today's episode and ideas for future ones, email us at sideofdesign at bwbr.com. Thanks for listening today and allowing us to talk about our journey as messy as it may be. We know we're not alone in what we're feeling and trying to do. We need each other to help pick us up when we stumble through this effort. Until we audibly meet again, see you on the other side.